0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Chris Stout, who is the author of The Case for Identity Politics, Polarization, Demographic Change, and Racial Appeals. This book was published by the University of Virginia Press in 2020, and it is a really topical, really prescient dive into a discussion of identity politics and the way that race can and cannot be used on the campaign trail. But I'm going to let Chris tell us a little bit about that as we talk about his book. I'd like to welcome Christopher Stout to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, Chris.
1: Hey, Lily. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast, Uh, My name is Chris Stout. I am an associate professor at Oregon State University in the Department of Political Science. Uh, I got my I have my Ph.D. or received my Ph.D. from the University of California, Irvine, and my undergraduate degree from UC Riverside, both in California. Uh, I study generally racial and ethnic politics in the United States, and this is my second book on racial appeals. And so How I came to this project is kind of a, it it was a surprise to me. This was not the project that I had planned on working on when it started. In part, it came from an invitation to present at the Black Power at 50 conference at Columbia University, which celebrated the work of Charles Hamilton. And in that invitation, we were asked to think about ways that our work met or worked or fit with the work of Charles Hamilton. And so in my first book, Bringing Race Back In, I made the argument that African-American candidates should not ignore race on the campaign trail. And that was in direct contrast to Charles Hamilton's deracialization thesis. And Hamilton's deracialization thesis basically made the argument that for the Democratic Party to win in the 1970s and 1980s, they had to refrain from talking about race because it turned off white working class voters instead they should focus on economically liberal non-racial policies like universal health care and um and universal employment and so i went back to look at charles hamilton's work during that period of time just to think a little bit more about it and think about how our work fit together and then he had a pretty key line that just stuck with me and it said something like the racialization was written to work in, for election context in the 1970s. But at all other points, it must be calculated. It's a strategy to be used sparingly and not just a, a panacea for the Democratic Party for all times. And so that really got me thinking, you know, the context of the 1970s is drastically different than the context of the political context of today. And so um, I wrote a, a quick chapter about that. And in that, I made the argument that um, The context we live in makes it advantageous for the Democratic Party to talk about race for numerous reasons, including polarization, demographic change, and growing racial consciousness amongst Blacks and uh, Latinos. Um, And so I presented this work in October of 2016, and in it, I think the title of my talk was Why Hillary Clinton Was Going to Win. Uh, and I was totally incorrect about that.
0: As so many uh, were. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> um, and so at the end of that, you know, uh, I came back and was like, oh, I was just wrong. But the narrative that came from that was mostly that Democrats lost because they talked too much about identity politics. And I thought that was the wrong lesson to take from the 2016 election. In fact, I thought the opposite might have been true, that the Democratic Party and maybe Hillary Clinton didn't do enough to appeal to black and Latino voters, which drove down turnout. And so that was really the motivation for the book. I had that one chapter. This was a pretty salient topic and going against what I what I thought to be true and what the data had shown to be true. And so that's what motivated me to write this book.
0: And and you come in, you know, you, you said you set out you set that out really nicely in the, um, in the introduction and to some degree you sort of explain the way that you're building this book um, and what you're looking at. And so before we dive into sort of the thesis, when, when you're talking about identity politics, and again, this term is now discussed all the time, but not necessarily defined, <laughs> um, could you just tell the listeners a little bit about what you mean by the terminology itself,
1: yeah. So I think it's usually used in a pejorative, a uh, pejorative way, right? Like identity politics is bad because it's divisive, and it is meant to only cater to some groups over others. And I don't necessarily see it that way. And so I think of identity politics, at least the way that I'm using it in this book, as being. Politics centered around race. And I think there's, and that's how I, race or ethnicity, and that's how I use it in this book. But identity politics, I think, can be used in a variety of ways. So I think uh, Donald Trump used identity politics when he played to white rural voters or working class voters. Um, Gender could be used as a term for identity politics. So anything where someone has an identity and that identity takes on some political meaning is what I think of when I think of identity politics. And while I use the term broadly, or while I use case identity, case for identity policies as the title, I'm, most specific, I'm more specifically interested in racial and ethnic politics in the United States.
0: And, and again, this is really nicely sort of designed the way you sort of take it up, because you also do set up this question of context, um, and that I found really interesting in your analysis of Hamilton's work, and also where your work is sort of looking at what he said. But as you note, this context is really important. So what is the difference when we're starting to think about identity politics in 2021 or 2016? when you were sort of charged with sort of trying to analyze this in terms of Hamilton's own work and what he was talking about in 1960s or 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I think the, so that I think is the, the main contribution of the book is to think about the political context. And I think so much work had been done on deracialization and the movement away from discussing race among politicians, comparing majority black areas to majority white areas. And that was the context that most scholars had looked at up to this point. And I thought more that there's a historical context where racial appeals become much more effective. And so I think about this as kind of a set, there's been set of social movements throughout United States history. So you had the abolitionist movement Uh, And there was an opening in the political context in the 1850s and 1860s, which really made the discussion about slavery much more salient and much more uh, appealing to certain segments of the population. I think the same thing was true in the 1960s with the civil rights movement. And so I feel like we're entering a period in the latter half of the 20 teens and the early half of the 2020s, where there's a real political opening for candidates to talk about race. And in all of those contexts, I think it largely starts with the recognition that there's that racial progress has stalled and that racial inequality continues to be a significant problem. I think throughout most of American history, there's an inclination for people to think that things are better now and we don't have to worry about racial or ethnic ethnic, uh, inequalities as a problem that need to be solved. And so in the 1970s and 1980s, we had just moved past the civil rights movement. And there's maybe a collective padding on the back of people thought, look, we passed the voting rights act. We passed the civil rights act. Things are equal now. And so we don't have to really do much. And that wasn't just true of, uh, Af- uh, whites. I think African-Americans and a lot of Latinos bought into this idea that things had changed. Things were a lot better now. And that's something I talk a little bit about in the book where there's a real decline in racial consciousness in the nineties and early two thousands. Um, but I think, a couple of things changed during this period of time to really highlight the idea that we are not in a post-racial society. I think Barack Obama's election is one that I, I talk about a lot, uh, particularly in the second chapter, under the argument that people thought, look, Barack Obama's election indicates that we, we've made it, that anybody with hard enough work, regardless of their race, gender, class, etc., can achieve the American dream. And that was quickly dispelled by the treatment of Barack Obama in large part by the Tea Party. So I think this started to lead to this this awakening that things weren't equal. But I think what really happened was Black Lives Matter. So as Black Lives Matter as a social movement grew in importance and really highlighted uh, the dangers that African-Americans face in society, more and more people became aware of racial inequality and more and more people wanted to do something about it. And so I think in a political context where the social movement has put race uh, on the forefront, it doesn't make sense for politicians to ignore it and to think that we've done better because the population as a whole, I think, not population as a whole, but certainly segments within the democratic party think that we need to address this problem. And so that's why I think this context is different than the 1970s and 1980s.
0: And, and in talking about this, and again, this is really about, you know, sort of the politics inside the democratic party to a degree at this point, because of the sorting of the parties, um, but you're talking about how politicians and candidates sort of talk about policy areas that are either, you know, using a kind of racialized lens or a deracialized lens. And that's where Hamilton had sort of talked about the context being important to use a de-racialized lens um, but your argument is that it may be time to or it may be valuable to talk about policies through a racialized lens because that's more accepted acceptable to different groups of voters can you talk about that understanding of how policy is discussed and what the policy is and where the emphasis is
1: yeah so i think in, th- in terms of specific policies Um, So I look at a couple policies in the book, and I think there's probably varying degrees to the acceptance in the population, although politicians have, I think, pushed that in recent years. So certainly voting rights is something that most people agree with, right? Most people, at least on the Democratic Party. So Democratic candidates talking about voting rights are not going to be not going to turn off a large part of their base or a large part of independents who generally support the Democratic Party. Um, I think criminal justice reform is another good example of this. And immigration reform are two issues where Democrats, at least at a bare minimum, have to talk about these issues. Uh, And these don't turn people off. And I think if you don't talk about those things, voters get really, really turned off. I think Black Lives Matter has made talking about policing much more acceptable. And again, there's, I think, a push from the Democratic electorate for politicians to talk about it. Had Biden not embraced Black Lives Matter I think black turnout would have been much lower and that would have not, you know, I think he would have lost in several states, certainly in places like Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, which are relatively close. And so politicians have to talk about those things. And I think there are things that maybe are touchier, but still attitudes have changed. So in my book, I look at affirmative action support for affirmative action. Now, a majority of whites, even a majority of white Democrats still oppose affirmative action as asked in the AES. But that, even that has grown significantly by double digits, where even now whites are more accepting of the idea of affirmative action. So I think there's certainly levels in which candidates can talk about racial policy, but a, a campaign which is totally devoid of appeals to race is one that I don't think can win in the current, uh, is not a winning strategy for the Democratic Party in the current political context.
0: And, and what you're talking about also in the book is that this is really, at this point, because of the sorting in the parties, this is really about how Democratic, the Democratic Party and Democratic candidates are talking about issues that have racial components. Is that correct?
1: That's right. I think the sorting is kind of part of the key to the, the story, is that, and this is it goes back to your earlier question about what's different between the 1970s and 1980s. In the 1970s and 1980s, there was a large segment of the population known as Reagan Democrats. These are individuals who are economically liberal, but racially conservative, and they were the key to winning elections. Reagan was able to tap into them in the 1980s and pull them away from the Democratic Party, and that was really beneficial to his campaign. Clinton was able to bring them back in the 1990s, uh, and then they, there was battles over them between Bush and Obama for Bush in the early 2000s and then Obama afterwards. But one of the things that I argue is after Barack Obama's election that these group of voters began to split. So while they were once cross pressured between their economic beliefs and their racial beliefs, uh, and this is what made the racialization so important, right? They economically agree with the Democratic Party. So as long as the Democratic Party didn't turn those voters off, by their racial opinions, then they could attract those voters. So, so Democrats were incentivized not to talk about race. However, over time economic policy started to emerge more closely with racial policy because race became the dominant divide in American politics. So how you viewed African-Americans, how you viewed viewed Latinos, Asian-Americans, other groups then started to better map onto your Uh, economic policy. So you, even if it didn't benefit you, you started to think more about the racial policy and then just adapt the economic policy of the politicians who had had a congruent racial policy with your own. And so over time, those voters became less split. Those who were racially liberal became more and more democratic. Those who were racially conservative became more and more uh, Republican. And so there wasn't this mass of cross-pressured voters anymore. And in fact, most people have chosen aside. Right. If you're racially liberal, you're going to be much more likely to be democratic, if You're racially conservative, you're more likely to be Republican. Um, and as a result, this deracialization isn't picking up any new voters, right? So this idea of deracialization means that you're going to bring back racially conservative whites who are economically liberal, though they don't exist to the same degree that they did in the past. And so you're not pulling enough of those people over because race is their main, um, Because they're already sorted within in the Republican Party. So I think the growing polarization presents kind of a real opportunity for parties to double down on their base and to talk about the things that their base cares about. And race is something that I think um, voters on the left uh, are, are becoming more and more concerned with
0: and you also note in in the context of the book and not deeply but you know again because you're sort of talking about where some of this is splitting but that the the identity of white voters is also a, a an identity a political identity that has been taking over more and more of a connection to an understanding of policy as well as sort of politics. And this goes to this question of polarization and what we saw to some degree from Trump as a candidate and also as a president. Can you talk a little bit about that in context of um, these moves to either deracialize or racialize the policy discussions?
1: Yeah, so certainly I think One of the things I talk about in the book is the changing demographics of the United States combined with Barack Obama's election made a lot of, or a significant number of whites worried that they were losing their position in the United States. And so I think a a ton of people have written about this. And so I borrow heavily from, from their work. Um, But this idea then is once you feel like you're losing your position then that identity becomes much more salient right this this perception of victimhood that whites are, are are losing power and things are getting worse for them and they're not being treated fairly increases their racial identity and for those whose like racial identity has become it, it really salient particularly for whites then they become much more opposed to democrats regardless of whether they racialize or not as the democratic as the republican party has been much more explicit in in appealing to that white identity to say, look, you're being mistreated because uh, because others are taking your jobs, right? Immigrants are taking your jobs. Um, You're not safe because of rioting uh, with Black Lives Matter. And so that really appeals to that identity. And so that's not something I, I do as much in the book as I should, but certainly uh, it, the, the, the principal fits, right? This idea that identity matters. And because the Republican Party plays up on that identity, they're much better able to attract these voters and to mobilize these voters. At the same time, it means that the Democratic Party is not going to get those voters back by simply not talking about race, right? So by not talking about race, uh, if they're making that decision between a party that's not talking about race, ignoring it, because they, of course the Democratic Party doesn't want to turn off racially liberal voters, or the racial or people of color within their party and the Republican party is doubling down on this, they're going to go with the side that's taking a more, taking a stronger position on their identity. Um, And so, yeah, I think that this is another reason why the deracialization strategy is no longer effective and appealing to these voters.
0: And and you also spend about um, a third of the book or so talking about um, this, the, the way that the sort of racialized or deracialized lens around around policy in campaigns um, and by politicians impacts um, or has impacted um, the Latino or Hispanic vote in the United States, um, but that this group is not necessarily as cohesive as a potential voting block um, as the African-American community is. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the distinctions that you saw in exploring sort of the the discussions within these groups and their polling on these topics?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that was interesting to me and one of the things that I thought about when writing this book is just how much racial consciousness had grown for African Americans as a result of black lives matter and the Obama administration. And so one of the books I pull from a lot is a book by Ellis Coates called the end of anger. And in it, he, he interviews numerous African-Americans who think, you know, things have gotten better for us. And so if we just play by, play by quote unquote the rules, then we can succeed in America, and We shouldn't worry about racial inequality anymore. And then we saw African-Americans become much more racially conscious after the treatment of Obama and Black Lives Matter, which then changed their opinions on numerous issues. Uh, For Latinos, it's a little different because Latino is obviously a pan-ethnic term which combines numerous nationalities who don't necessarily see themselves as being Latino the same way that African-Americans largely see themselves as being African-American. And so there's a, a, a ton of work on this particular topic. In the book, I find that Latinos did change and did become more pan-ethnically conscious. Right. And so one of the things I measure is linked fate, which is a traditional measure, which it, which looks at how much you think your own outcomes in your life are tied to others who share your pan-ethnicity. Um, and so here I look at Latino pan-ethnicity and that did grow. It was higher in 2016 than it had been at any point in any survey that I had taken back over almost a 20 year or at least over a decade or two. Um, And so Latinos did become more conscious. Uh, They didn't move as much as other groups, but still did move, right? So they were responsive to Barack Obama's move for DACA. So they became much more supportive uh, after Barack Obama expanded uh, his DACA program to include the parents of, of children from from DAPA or for, who were, who were tied to DACA, uh, but they didn't move as much in other areas as as did African Americans and and whites. Um, yeah,
0: and and I I told you before we started that I wanted to ask you about some of the conclusions that you drew about Latino voters in the United States. And then some of what we saw during the 2020 election, particularly in Florida and Texas, with regard to Latino voters, who, you know, sort of broke more heavily towards Trump than people kind of expected, um, or that had happened in 2016.
1: Yeah. So I, in an ideal world, only the Georgia election would have happened in the uh, Senate elections. Cause that really better confirms the findings of my book than what happened in 2020. Uh, but I, so yeah, I was surprised, right? My expectation was, and I guess this was my expectation in 2016 too. So I, I am often wrong, but uh, I think in, in Florida and in Texas, And even in thinking broadly about Latinos and even African Americans, one of the things that I didn't take into account that I think needs to be taken more or addressed more in the future is what happens when the other party also makes appeals to African Americans and Latinos, right? Even if those appeals may not be, may not be sincere, right? I don't, I don't want to speak to the sincerity of them, but, uh, Donald Trump and the Trump campaign made new, had numerous Spanish speaking advertisements in Florida and in Texas. And that's something that most Republicans hadn't done in the past. So there was some outreach to th- this group of voters. Uh, so that, that might have appealed and brought more over. And there's, there's work that shows us, right? Like Spanish language advertisement, Lauren Collingwood has, does a really a lot of good work on this. Um, those types of advertisements can pull over some Latino voters. And so that might, it is one of the reasons why I think that Trump did better in 2020 and in 2016. And then thinking about African-Americans and why Trump did slightly better with that group as well was that he also put out numerous appeals. So he had his platinum plan and he campaigned with celebrities. Again, like I don't know the sincerity of him actually following through on those plans, but they were some types of racial appeals. He attacked Uh, uh, Joe Biden on the 1995 crime bill, 1994 crime bill, which may have turned off some black voters. And so um, I think my book is mostly focused on how voters respond to appeals from the Democratic Party, because that's where the debate was happening at the end of the 2016 election, was should the Democratic Party talk about race or not. But I think more work in the future needs to look at the effectiveness of appeals from the Republican Party. And I suspect, based off what I found looking at the Democratic Party, that these appeals can pull over some, right? So it's unlikely that the Republican Party, regardless on how much they they address race or make racial appeals, is going to be able to pull over a majority of black or Latino voters. But at the margins, it could matter. They could pull in 10, 15 additional percent of voters who maybe are uh, – more in line with the Democratic or in the Republican Party in terms of their economic outlook or their religious outlook, and they just need to be told that they have a place in the party rather than that they're viewed as kind of enemies. Which has generally been, I think, the perception among amongst people of color that the Republican Party is not a suitable home.
0: I mean, this has been sort of a constant um, refrain about the fact that as a as a group of voters, African Americans tend to be more conservative in terms of political perceptions um and policies, but that they aren't necessarily welcomed into the Republican Party. Is that incorrect?
1: I think that's in part true, right? But I think the 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 Republican Party does takes so the Republican Party is in a difficult position. I think this is something I want to talk about with the demographic chapter is that There's analysis that shows that over time, it becomes harder and harder for the Republican Party to win unless it can pull over a significant amount of black and Latino voters or white voters, right? And I think they might have maximized the amount of white voters that they can pull over. There's very few left that they're going to get. It's gonna take some pretty large conversions because of political polarization for them to win nationally Uh, because the whites who remained in the Democratic Party Are much more racially liberal Um, and so then they do need to pull over some blacks and Latinos who might otherwise fit with the party but they have to do so without turning off their base which doesn't want to be seen as a home for people of color or a party that represents people of color they want to be so maybe to the extent that they can feel that they're not racially biased themselves but they might be turned off by a party that's spending too much time appealing to Latinos and African-Americans. so that's the thing that Republicans have to contend with. And so Trump, I think to his credit might have done well by saying, look, I have these plans and these plans I think were really vague. uh, and so they're enough to be a symbolic outreach without being any substantive outreach to blacks and Latinos. And these for some who are mad at the democratic party may have been particularly mad at Joe Biden because of his support of the 1994 crime bill. Some of those might've trickled away toward Trump. I don't know that that's something that can be replicated with a different candidate. Um, and if that's something that can ever happen over it, that, that you achieve shifting coalitions in that direction, but the Republican party probably has to do more to appeal, to blacks and Latinos if it wants to contend nationally going forward and hope that this can be an effective strategy of pulling away 10, 15 percent of those voters.
0: And so uh, a big part of what you're talking about in the book, and, and you sort of lay this out really nicely, is the demographic shifts that we all are are sort of understanding in terms of the growing um, Hispanic community in the United States and that they are, as a group, becoming a plurality in a number of states already. Um, and that, you know, in another 25, 30 years, the United States will be, uh, you know, a sort of a much more multiracial um, uh, country with few groups having any particular claim to be a majority. And and how does that fit into you know, what you're talking about with regard to the the way that the two parties are sort of campaigning and looking for voters.
1: Yeah, I think for the Democratic Party, there's always the assumption that blacks won't vote for Republicans and will always vote for Democrats and Latinos will do the same. But the argument that I make in the book is that that's that shouldn't be taken for granted, that both parties and particularly the Democratic Party, who has right now at least has home field advantage with these voters Needs to be proactive in their outreach. Needs to show that blacks and Latinos aren't being taken for granted. In some of my previous work, I find that when African Americans feel like politicians or parties don't care about them, they become much less enthusiastic and much less likely to turn out. And so, while uh, they might not turn to the Republican Party, they're not coming to the polls. And I think this was really this really hurt Hillary Clinton. And so, to really harness the effectiveness of of the changing demographics of the country, the Democratic Party should be talking about race. And in the previous chapters, I showed that discussions of race are really effective in getting Blacks and Latinos to vote, right? And they may not not all vote for Democrats uh, in every case, but they disproportionately and almost, you know, in very large majorities vote for the Democratic Party. So the higher levels of Black and Latino turnout are key for the Democratic Party success as they have lost a substantial amount of white voters. And so the change in demographics makes it, I think, important for the democratic party not to ignore racial appeals if they're to succeed. Uh, for Republicans, it also means that they have to think about ways to engage these communities in a way that they, they haven't in the past, which again, puts them in uh, a really difficult position in that they need to pull some of these voters off without alienating their, their core, or their base, uh, the, the last thing I want to say is this is something that I think is interesting about the demographic changes is that nationally, the changes are going to benefit the democratic party and discussions of racial appeals are going to benefit the democratic party. And this becomes more and more true in each passing election. So it's going to become easier assuming that the current coalition of voters remains, uh, for the democratic party to win nationally. But it's going to become much more difficult for them to win at the state level, and particularly in the U.S. Senate, as um, the Senate becomes more and more uneven. I I can't remember the the exact statistic, but it's something like uh, 60 percent of the population will be represented by 30 percent of U.S. senators at some point in time. And most of this, where the 60 percent of the population is, is going to be in places where Democrats are strong. And so, while demographic change is going to benefit the Democratic Party na- nationally and help them win more presidential elections, it's going to make it harder, I think, in some ways, for them to win the U.S. Senate and maybe some subnational elections.
0: And and I just wanted to ask you because we we haven't really gotten to the the exact example that you talk about in the book um, with regard to the way that Democrats. Um, have sort of shifted the way that they discuss policies. And one of the things you make really clear is that it was really this question of policies that are based on class versus policies that were seen as based on race. Um, And obviously we saw some of this, you know, unfold in the last two primary cycles with regard to Bernie Sanders' candidacy also. Can you just give a little bit of an example of how the racialization of the policy discussion or de-racialization of the policy discussion is sort of presented within um, the political sort of rhetor- rhetorical dynamic?
1: Yeah. So I think uh, thinking about 2016 and 2020, you know, the democratic party, I think, especially because the field was so large in this current election, there's large divisions on which base you, which, Segment of the party we're going to go after, and that's something that I talk about a little bit in the book. And others have pointed out, and I borrow from other researchers, that the Democratic Party really is a series of as a series of coalitions uh, of different types of voters, some being economically liberal, some being racially liberal. And I think politicians who I think took the lesson from 2016, which was you can't win by talking about race. Uh, and I think some politicians took that to heart, said, let's go back to what we did in the in the period of deracialization. We'll talk about economically liberal policies, but not racial policies. And just make the argument that these policies are going to disproportionately benefit people of color, which they will, but we don't have to talk about race-specific policies. And I'm not sure that that's effective enough. I think Again, uh, going into the summer with the protests around George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Maud Arbor, etc., that these policies which were colorblind, right, the idea that everyone's going to benefit, and again, people of color would disproportionately benefit, were fine. But, it, but I think the population, not just blacks and Latinos and Asian Americans, but also whites wanted to see politicians who were going to say, I'm going to do something for blacks specifically, and for Latinos specifically, and for Asian Americans specifically. And I think Biden did a lot of that in his campaign uh, and that benefited him, right? The fact that he got Jim Clyburn's endorsement uh, and then went on to win numerous states on Super Tuesday is in, in, I don't want to say in in total, but in large part driven by people of color overwhelmingly supporting his campaign, right? Winning in South Carolina, if he loses in South Carolina, it's unlikely that he goes on to win, but getting the endorsement and the support of African-Americans and then speaking specifically to the interests of African-Americans is key to winning, uh, I think, presidential primaries in the Democratic Party in a way that simply talking about economic issues in a non-racial way, I don't know that there's that, that attracts black and Latino voters in the same way.
0: And, and one of the final questions I wanted to ask you about the book, besides what we already talked about with regard to how Latino voters voted in 2020 in Texas and Florida, were there other surprises in the 2020 outcome? Um, as you And you said, you know, the, the Georgia election confirmed a lot of what you were talking about, um, but were there other surprises that you said, oh, this works with my thesis or this doesn't work with my thesis? Yeah, I think the,
1: the general tone of seeing That um, okay. I think one of the most surprising things to me was seeing how well. So I'll say two. The first is that Biden uh, was able to bring back white white male voters. So this was not what I expected going into to the 2020 election. Biden had spent a lot of time talking about Black Lives Matter. I think in his in his acceptance speech after he wins the election, he says, "Look, I'm going to fight for African Americans." And so my expectation was that that's probably not going to win over a large segment of white male voters. And he was able to do so. And so that was a little bit surprising to me uh, and kind of signal that there there might be an appetite for discussing race amongst a large segment of even white male voters. And that's not something that I would have argued or expected in the book. I don't disaggregate by gender, but that was my general expectation was that most of the racially liberal voters were going to be amongst whites would be amongst women. And so that was a little bit surprising to me. Uh, the thing that wasn't surprising, and I think fits with the narrative of the book, is that there's a growing divide uh, in the white community about how candidates address race. And I think it's particularly true amongst college-educated and non-college-educated voters. And so we're kind of seeing this reshuffling of coalitions, where in the past, non-college-educated uh, voters, someone that I, I think in the book label is, is Reagan Democrats, Kind of shifted back and forth as being Democrat in some cases and Republican in other cases. But now it seems like they are becoming more and more Republican and more so in 2020 than even they were even so in 2016. So that group of voters becomes harder to bring back through deracialization. At the same time, those with college education have become more racially liberal and more racially aware. And so, while they used to be really solid Republican voters, they have now shifted to the Democratic Party, and I think that's in no small part because of the party's uh, more more forceful position on on racial issues,
0: and and probably a general distaste for Donald Trump. But I don't know. Yes, I'm <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not casting aspersions here. Um, <laughs> So, um, so this is, I mean, this is a great book and it's, it's so beautifully written too. It's so clear and, and lovely to read, um, which I really, really appreciate it. So I'm wondering what it is you're working on now.
1: Yeah. So I think thinking about the 2020 election, even the 2016 election, in both cases, I expected, look, Hillary Clinton talked about racial issues uh, Joe Biden talked about racial issues, and in both these cases, we should have seen an increase in black support and black turnout, and that wasn't the case. And in a large part, I, I kind of suspect that that's driven by their racial past and the ability for the Republican Party to highlight that. So in 2016, Donald Trump and his campaign really pushed on Hillary Clinton's claim of uh, super predator, right, that she used this word super predator to describe african-american youth even though she didn't explicitly connect it to african-american youth in 2020 there were numerous ads that uh donald trump and his campaign put out that highlighted brock that that joe biden's crime bill led to the incarceration uh, of african-americans and latinos in large numbers and again both things are true Um, and so what do, what do these type of attacks mean? What do these race based attacks of painting your opponent as not being racially liberal mean for black and Latino turnout. And then what can these candidates do to address this? If anything, right. Does a racialized platform and an apology, um, and a, a recognition of wrongdoing. Is that something that can be used to address these mistakes that people have made in the past that have had dire consequences? for people of color. And so I'm really interested uh, in that right now. So I've been working on a couple of projects related
0: to that. Well, I hope when that becomes probably the next book that you'll come back on the New Books Network and talk to me about it. I'd love to. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Um, Thank you, Christopher Stout for talking to me today about the case for identity politics, polarization, demographic change, and racial appeals. This was published by University of Virginia Press in 2020 is there a brick and mortar store with an online portal that you'd like to give a shout out to?
1: Yeah, so I'm here in Oregon. So I'll say Powell's books in Portland uh, has, has the book and it's a wonderful place. It's a, it's a great place to buy books.
0: And I'm sure that Powell's I know Powell's has an out an online outlet. So people can buy it through their, their website. I assume. <laughs> yes. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much for having
0: me.